This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Rising temperatures are sapping the Colorado River, and it's worse than forecasters realized. That's from a new study looking at the effects of climate change. Its co-author is Brad Udall, climate scientist at Colorado State University, and welcome to the program. Thanks, Ryan. The Colorado River provides water to about 40 million people. It's studied very closely, of course, but unlike other studies of the Colorado, yours didn't just look at rain or snowfall, so water in, but at heat and its effect on water. Why did you look at heat? So we discovered that this recent drought, which is the most serious on record, has a temperature-induced decline that is far more serious than anybody anticipated. Decline on water. Exactly. So about a third of the flow losses during the current drought, enough water for 2 million people, appears to be the cause of very warm temperatures, temperatures that we expect to increase as this century unfolds. Because often with droughts, you do look at the lack of water falling from the sky and perhaps are less likely to consider what heat might be doing in terms of its evaporative qualities, right? Yeah, no, that's exactly right. So when it's hot, as it has been, plants use more water, soil evaporates more, reservoirs lose more water, and even the atmosphere actually demands more water, along with this longer growing season that we're seeing. So there's good reasons to believe that temperature should reduce the flow. We went ahead and quantified what those numbers look like. And were you surprised by the results? Well, in some ways, yes. In some ways, no. This work builds on a lot of previous work that other people have done, and I was involved in some of it, other scientists. So we knew there was a problem, but to actually see it in front of your very own eyes when you crank the numbers is is surprising, yes. Okay. And you talked about this being uh, the equivalent in an amount of water for about 2 million people or 2 million households? Uh, 2 million people. Okay. Uh, can you put that into some context for us? So again, so about a third of the the most recent drought, we lost about 20% of the average annual flow. So about a third of that 6%, we figure is due to temperature loss. It's about what we call 500,000 acre feet, an acre foot being an Olympic swimming pool, and each acre foot's about four people. So if you do the math, that turns out to be water for roughly 2 million people. Okay. And again, this isn't just evaporation. It's that plants get thirstier, so they take up more water. Lots of different factors uh, connected to the heat. Yeah, exactly. And the, and the real worry here is not what happened in the 20th century or the early part of the 21st century where it's 1.6 Fahrenheit warmer. It's what happens as this century proceeds and we continue to emit greenhouse gases and we know it will get warmer, perhaps significantly warmer. Indeed, you looked from 2000 to 2014 as a way of quantifying what the loss is, but you are particularly interested in what that loss looks like going forward. Yeah. And I suppose uh, if you look at the the current situation, there's been a lot of moisture, you know, um, and it might work to counteract even in good years when there is a lot of rain and snow falling if temperatures are increasing. So everybody's interested in this recent year where we're looking at 140% perhaps of the average annual runoff. 
What happened, though, during that drought from 2000 to 2014 that we studied is the reservoirs lost 60% of their capacity. So these major reservoirs in the system, the two largest reservoirs in the United States, Lake Powell and Lake Mead, are now collectively at 40% of capacity. Even after this year, the estimates I've seen suggest they'll go to 50% of capacity. We will see wet years. No question, climate change modifies the hydrologic cycle, the water cycle in fundamental ways. And Mm -hmm. part of that will be some wet years. But what we think we will see is long periods of very dry years, which then will cause the problems that we talk about. Yeah, dry years and with rising temperatures, hot years as well, sort of counteracting any of the the goodness of those potentially wet years. Yeah. And and so one of the things we did that was unusual in this study was separate apart the effects of temperature from precipitation. Mm-hmm. And turns out at 2100, we if we continue to emit greenhouse gases as we are right now, a mid-range estimate is temperature losses will be about 35% of the flow of the river, just temperature alone. Now, increases in precipitation could counteract that, but you would need twice the amount of the wettest decade on average in the in the 20th century to overcome that. In other words, you would need a tremendous amount of new precipitation to counteract these temperature-induced flow losses. You do warn of the potential for mega droughts, which you define as lasting more than two decades. And there have been mega droughts, of course, in the past. So how how would the current situation or the future situation differ from what the West has already seen? So, yeah. So we can use tree rings, for example, to look back uh, over a thousand years and look at river flows. Uh, you know, wet years meet, mean wide tree rings, dry years, narrow ones. And hmm. we have trees that are – you can actually piece together back what it looked like in the 1200s. And we see, for example, a 25-year period around 1200 where we lost about 16 percent of flow. But what seemed what we seem to know now is that the mega drought uh, potential in the 21st century, because of these high temperatures, goes from maybe 10 or 15 percent probability to over 90 percent. And so this implies yet another risk factor associated with the river: long periods of dryness that lead to substantial reductions in flows. I see. So it's not that mega droughts are anything new in the West. It's that the potential for them increases dramatically with climate change. What are the policy implications of this study related to heat and the Colorado River? So this is one of the most intensively managed basins in the world. And arguably, the management in this basin is actually really good because the seven states and the two nations over the years have figured out that it's a lot better to discuss these issues and figure them out than it is to litigate them. In the 1960s, there's a very famous Supreme Court case that no one particularly liked the outcome of it. And the the goal now is let's negotiate rather than throw this in the courts because the courts can't possibly understand this. The trick with water management in seven states and two nations is nothing happens quickly. It takes years to come to agreement. And so one of our rationales for waving this flag is to say, let's start thinking about this now. How would we manage this system, for example, if we had 20 percent less water? Not like we had during the last 15 years, but as a permanent condition on the river. And I'm actually optimistic that our managers can figure out how to deal with this. If you have 20% less, you still got 80%. And that's not insignificant. 
It's often true, though, that management decisions are made based on science and research. If federal funding for this kind of research is cut, and I understand that that your study on heat and the Colorado River received some federal funding, uh, is there a concern there for you? Oh, absolutely. I think within... The current world in which we work with the new administration, no one knows what climate change research will be all about. No one knows if we'll have our satellites. No one knows if we'll have our funding. Listen, climate change is the most serious long-term problem facing humans on the planet right now. The scientists I work with lose sleep over this. We have the tools to fix it. We have The science, frankly, has nailed the problem. We're now working on more details like this study. But we need to be able to continue this science and the society. We need to figure out what to actually do about it. Brad Udall, senior water and climate scientist at Colorado State University and co-author of a new study of climate change in the Colorado River. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. What if you could cool a building 24 hours a day, seven days a week, with no electricity or water and without using any energy? That might be possible someday with new technology developed at CU Boulder. And it's our focus now in beta test about scientific discovery in the state. Engineers Ronggui Yang and Xiaobo Yin join Nathan Heffel to explain how their material works. Welcome, professors, to Colorado Matters. Hello. Hello. Well, let's get started with the question that this material, it's the thickness of the aluminum foil you find in your kitchen, and it consists of two layers. Uh, Rangui, can you explain what the two layers are made of in general terms? Yes. So the first layer, which is the top layer, we try to face the layer to the sky, is made of small size glass beads and mixed with like plastics essentially it's a polymer film and that film gives you self-emitting function basically cool down then in the back in the there is a layer with about 200 nanometer of aluminum and so that aluminum that prevents the sunlight from from getting in and, and kind of reflects it off there is that correct yes and Xiaobo, when you put the two layers into action, what do they do? So literally, it's uh, the polymer layer, the plastic layer. It's much like our skin. It's keep releasing heat, much like uh, uh, a thermal radiation process, releasing photons of infrared light. So a lot of folks understand the night vision camera, how that works, right? Basically, all the objects are going to release heat in the form of light. So when you put this material outdoor, it will keep releasing energy, the thermal energy, in the form of light, infrared light. And in this case, you can pull the heat away and cool itself down. The second layer, the, the metal layer underneath, is trying to block the sunlight. So when you put this film out of underneath the sun, the sunlight comes in, hits the metal mirror, then they get back to the sky. So even under the sunshine, this film and this material can cool itself down automatically. So is it essentially allowing passive radiative cooling to happen 24 hours a day, regardless of when the sun is up or when the sun is down type of thing? Exactly. I see. 
Now, Rangui, I should note that you created this new material as an eco-friendly means of cooling thermoelectric power plants. And those plants currently require a large amount of water and electricity to maintain the operating temperatures of their equipment. So how would this material help those power plants? Okay, this is an excellent question. This essentially is the question on what really our big project is. It's, uh, yeah, this this material can be used to cool any objects. It can be cool a surface, right? And you can apply this material to cool a large amount of water. And that water essentially can be cooled down to a temperature lower than the ambient temperature. And the cold water can be used to cool the condensers of thermoelectric power plant. The condenser temperature itself actually determines the efficiency of thermoelectric power plants. And uh, you, if you use our film to cool water, and we essentially get some net gains to be to run an engine to have a larger temperature difference. Essentially, say you increase the efficiency of the power plants. And these power and plants. more importantly, we have this water can be closed looply used. It's, it it basically says we do not need to withdraw water from water pumps all the time. Because power uh, plants use a lot of water to cool their equipment, isn't that right? Right. Yes. Now, is this uh, material also usable, let's say, for a house in Denver or Fort Collins or somewhere like that? Well, so this this is an excellent question. Uh, ideally, it can be used, but it needs some engineering. The reality is uh, a lot of house we have is we have... Uh, big layer, actually. The residential house, we have a bigger layer. It's called attic. And that attic is insulated. We can cool the surface next to, say, our film, but that coldness cannot directly penetrate to your living space. To get this film to cool our house, we need some engineering work to make something called thermal systems. I see. So, so an additional system to help cool the house. Now, but what about yes. a house that, that doesn't have an attic or let's say uh, in India or, or in, in Africa or somewhere where there's no need to keep a house uh, warm during the winter because there is no winter? Yeah, let's, let's, this, this, is, this is an excellent question. Actually, we got a tons of inquiries about say, using this material in arid regions in Middle East, and in India, those houses, for example, they have only like stainless steel structures, and we can potentially directly apply our thin film material to cool down that, say, roof structure and uh, immediately penetrate the coordinates to the living space. With just that thin layer on top of the roof. Now, Xiaobo, how dramatic are the cooling effects that you're seeing here? So... Uh, under the direct sunshine, we can see the coldness. Basically, if you put the material under the sunshine, you will see about 15 to 25, 25 Fahrenheit lower in terms of temperature compared to the ambient temperature. 15 to 25 degrees lower with that fabric. Yeah. Interesting. Now, is this really expensive to create? So that's a great question. 
Um, so the key innovation we have here is, as you already heard, this material basically is made by plastic and glass beads. It's really uh, low-cost materials. But the most important thing here is we are able to make these material over large scale using the similar technology used in industry, basically how they make those food wrappers, like plastic uh, bags. And in this case, we can roll out these thin films in a we call row-to-row process, meters wide in a continuous form. In our own lab, we can make them on the scale of five meters in length just in a minute. So it's really a cost-effective approach. So you're modifying this, this already existing material. Now, this technique for cooling has been tried before in 2014. How is what you've created different than what was manufactured at Stanford University at that time? Mm-hmm. So this is a good point. So leverage the radiative process to cool down the material has been out there for a long time. I think back two years ago, a group of people in Stanford, led by Professor Xiang Hui Fan, they literally introduced the concept of how we can cool under the sunshine. So they introduced the so-called photonic structures. Uh, I believe the simplest version they have is a multiple layers, like seven to nine layers of material stacking together, utilizing the technology how people make CPU chips, for example. Uh, it's really cost uh, prohibitive to make this uh, technology being a viable process. Like I mentioned, we really make the materials in a continuous rotary manner, how people make uh, plastic bags. That's how... Uh, I believe the cost effectiveness is important here. And finally, when do you think this product will be ready for uses outside a laboratory? So we are already start testing these materials outdoor, and by three to six time, six three to six months time frame, we are going to build a twenty meter square roof structures on top of CU Engineering Building. Test out the system, like Professor Ronggui Yang mentioned, a system that collects the codes in a heat exchanging media, trying to cool down the infrastructures. Um, in terms of large-scale deployment, that's a great question. There's always a big gap between the research laboratory product to a real commercial product you can order from Amazon, right? So we are learning the process right now. But uh, like I think both Professor Young and I have the same, same picture here. We really hope this material can be adapted broadly simply because this is just cooling technology without using further the electricity and the water. It's critical for us. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Ronggui Yang and Xiaobo Yin have created a paper-thin film that drastically cools objects it covers, while also reflecting incoming solar energy. And it does that without using any energy. They spoke to Nathan Heffel as part of Beta Test, our regular coverage of scientific discovery in the state. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. In some schools, history is still taught how it was a hundred years ago with textbooks and tests. But CPR education reporter Jenny Brendine found a teacher in Douglas County who set out to revolutionize the way history is taught. 25 years ago, when Owen Sigelski was in high school... Memorizing facts and dates and events and just reading out a textbook... That didn't give him any passion to learn history. Even back then, he thought there has to be a better way. Fast forward 25 years, and he's doing it. 
This is the provocative question Sigelski throws at his students. Can you prevent World War I using artificial intelligence? Okay, Google. Talk to Wilhelm. Sure. Here's Wilhelm. Using tag overall. Continue. I'm looking at a small ceramic 3D head of Kaiser Wilhelm II of Germany. His red eyes are flashing. His jaw flaps as he speaks. I am the son of the royal princess Victoria and Emperor Frederick III. I hate the British. Sigelski's students have designed and programmed an artificial intelligence version of the Kaiser to respond to a series of questions. Sophomore Miha Bojanovsky programmed different levels of temperament and emotion to either get closer to declaring war if you anger him or getting closer to declaring peace if you kind of like try to pacify him almost. Now, this is an advanced placement world history class, so admittedly, a pretty radical way to study World War I. But this is the STEM School and Academy, a technology-focused charter school where there's a lot of freedom to think outside the box, way outside. Sigelski's very upfront about this with his class. He told them, We've never used this software before. We've never done this technology before. I don't think it's been done anywhere. And, you know, will you please basically... Try to jump off the cliff with me for a little while. And they did. Now, the students had to learn World War I history first, in the typical way, i.e. books and websites. Then a prototype team of students got to work coding the questions. Students initially intended a computer character, but one day... I get to talking with Mr. Sigelski. I make a joke about this AI having a physical talking head. Here's 16-year-old Benjamin Krauschuk. And then he then puts me on the task. They built a robotic head. But it was just a 3D-printed skull, essentially. Enter the art team. Grace Holland says they studied anatomy and got to work with rubber-based clay. Then we started to add details, like his eyebrows and his mustache. and his. Then they baked it. That's where the hardware team comes in. A group of students designed electronic devices to allow the robotic head to speak and eyes flash as it's answering questions. Questions like, who are you? Were you ever married? If you asked enough angry questions, he would declare war. But if you asked enough questions that made him say happier, then he would go towards peace. Overall, war may be avoided. Eventually, other historical characters may populate the classroom. Woodrow Wilson, Tsar Nicholas II, talking and debating with each other. Students will work to convince their leader not to start World War I. But it is tricky to devote so much time to this kind of learning when there are still tests to take. The kids still operate in a world where they want to score high on an AP exam. Jake Billings says it's challenging. So I'm trying to balance keeping up with all of these activities, all the brand new stuff, you know, where he's innovating, doing things that have never been done before, and worrying about getting that score at the AP exam at the end of the year. That means a lot of the heavy studying takes place at home. But the students say Sigelski's class is giving them an experience they won't forget. History isn't being able to memorize and label off a bunch of things that happened. Here's student Keith Headland. It's being able to look at the evidence presented and then say, okay, this must have been the underlying cause. This must have been what we could have done to help. This class teaches history by tapping into many kids' passions for electronics and programming. Teacher Sigelski is grounded in the idea that through failure, you learn the most. And in this project, the kids fail, revise, and improve a lot. I've had a lot of naysayers, a lot of teachers, and others just say, it shouldn't be done, stick to the textbook. And I just became more resolved to prove that wrong and to 
kind of create a new field of what I would call stemified history. Ah. Um, to make the original models, and we imported those into SketchUp. So Before I leave, I strap on some virtual reality goggles. Oh, just move my head? Just look, yeah, look up and down. Wow, oh, man. I'm actually taking a virtual tour of museums filled with students' own designs of models, comics, newspapers, and paintings, documenting the rise and fall of the world's great civilizations. This one I'll have to save for another story. I'm Jenny Brendine, Colorado Public Radio News. Now an update for you, plus a clarification in Loud and Clear, our regular feedback segment. The U.S. Supreme Court handed down a ruling Monday in a case we've covered out of Colorado. It's about jury deliberations, how secret they should be. This case called into question laws that prevent defendants from challenging a verdict based on what jurors say in private deliberations. Back in October, we spoke to Sherry Kolb, professor at Cornell Law School. One juror in particular said very racist things about the defendant and also about uh, an alibi witness for the defendant. So, for example, the, the quotes were, the defendant did it because he's Mexican and Mexican men take whatever they want. Uh, the defendant was guilty because in this person's experience as an ex-law enforcement officer, Mexican men had a bravado that caused them to believe they could do whatever they wanted with women. It was a sex assault case, and the defendant challenged the guilty verdict based on those sorts of comments. Well, the nation's highest court ruled 5-3 to three this week that a juror's use of racial or ethnic slurs during deliberations can be a reason to lift jury secrecy, which is a key protection of the legal system. The justices did not order a new trial for the defendant, nor did they lay out specific procedures for lower courts to follow. To that clarification now, we aired excerpts of a telephone town hall last week held by Colorado's Republican U.S. Senator Cory Gardner. A constituent asked him why he has so far supported all of President Trump's cabinet nominees. The senator answered that it was important for the president to have the people he nominates around him. He added that would be the case for any president and said that despite lobbying efforts, he voted to end debate and allow Barack Obama's nominee for Attorney General Loretta Lynch to reach the Senate floor for a vote. Several listeners wrote in, though, to point out that once it did reach the floor, Gardner voted against Lynch. Finally, we want your input on higher education. We're going to bring together some college presidents in Colorado, and we wonder what you'd ask them. Maybe it's about affordability or what you get for your money. Is the degree worth it? Email us, news at CPR.org. Again, news at CPR.org for your questions related to higher education. Child abuse charges in Colorado are often dismissed. Of the thousands of charges filed each year in the state, 75% aren't seen through. An investigation by the Fort Collins Coloradoan finds part of the problem is a stretched legal system. Reporter Jason Pohl says in 2015, Weld County had 18 felony child abuse cases. Larimer had 15. He told CPR's Joanne Allen about three that made headlines. The descriptions may be hard to listen to. We had an individual who allegedly assaulted a baby with a chair after he became angry while watching the child. And uh, that child ended up uh, dying as a result of the injuries suffered from that attack. About that same time, there was another case 
in which a babysitter allegedly assaulted a another child who he was watching at a downtown Fort Collins residence. And that child is still alive, fortunately, but suffered very, very serious injuries. And all of those two cases were happening about the same time as uh, perhaps the most high-profile child abuse and neglect case was gearing up for a two-week-long jury trial. And that was the case involving Doug and Leah Dyer. And they were accused and ultimately convicted of neglecting their daughter's seizure condition for several years to the point where, um, as prosecutors put it, she all but wasted away inside her Fort Collins home. And so these three cases were particularly egregious, at least in terms of the allegations, and that kind of prompted us to wonder, first and foremost, how prominent are cases like these in the first place, especially in northern Colorado? How many uh, child abuse charges have you uncovered in Colorado since 2012? In the approximately five and a half years that we were looking at data, there were more than 21,000 cases that included some form of child abuse. And that can range, of course, from a very a relatively benign allegation of, for example, driving a vehicle without a child properly restrained to child abuse resulting in death. But those cases are often dismissed. Is that right? That's right. That's right. And to understand why they're getting dismissed, you kind of have to partake in a little bit of understanding about the legal system. So when when someone is accused of a crime, um, and ultimately when charges are filed for a list of crimes, usually stemming from one or two incidents, those all get charged by prosecutors in the DA's offices. As the court system works through those cases, most of those do not go to a full jury trial. Jury trials are time-intensive and money-intensive. Often what happens is cases get pleaded down. A plea bargain is struck, and as a result of plea bargains, many other charges are ultimately dismissed. And so the the logic goes, uh, you dismiss the charges that maybe aren't as high-profile in a case, and you convict on ones that you know you can get a conviction on. What do you hope to accomplish from your reporting? I think the biggest thing that we uh, hope to accomplish with this reporting over the next few weeks is to both engage in a more holistic conversation about child abuse and child welfare in northern Colorado and show folks that, you know, this is a thing, it's a complicated thing, but it's an important thing that we need to recognize in our community and ultimately have a conversation about how okay are we with it being so common And what are we going to do to really address it? That is reporter Jason Paul of the Fort Collins, Colorado, and speaking with my colleague Joanne Allen. The paper is investigating how the state handles child abuse cases. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Blues legend Albert King performed at the Fox Theater in Boulder just months before he died. That was back in 1992. This week, the Fox celebrates its 25th anniversary. Other big names have played on that stage. Willie Nelson, Coldplay. CPR's arts reporter Corey Jones gathered some memories from the Fox. Hi, my name is Don Strasberg. I'm one of the owners of the Fox Theater in Boulder, Colorado. 
We felt like the other places were being run by people who didn't actually care about the experience and didn't understand it. And we wanted to go to a place where we felt welcomed. And so we built it. One of the, you know, millions of memories was David Byrne from the Talking Heads originally. David Byrne comes in probably about 10 or 12 years ago. And um, he had new music, but he was also, you know, playing old Talking Heads music. And then to boot, you know, he's just riding his bike around Boulder. I think he had a radio interview that day, rode his bike down to the radio station. It was like, there's David Bergman's bicycle. It's just very nonchalant. I mean, whether it be Muse, Ryan Adams, um, Dead Mouse, or Wilco, Widespread Panicked Fish, the band The Verve came through, and um, it was pre-Bittersweet Symphony. Hey, this is Kyle Hollingsworth. I play keyboards in a band from Colorado called The String Cheese Incident. I went to the Fox. I just moved to Boulder, Colorado. And my girlfriend and I went to see a show at the Fox, and there was a band called The String Cheese Incident playing. And they sounded fantastic, but I had a feeling they needed a keyboard player. So I walked up to Michael Kang. He's a mandolin player from The String Cheese Incident. And he and I struck up a conversation, and we ended up connecting and doing some jamming together. And I joined the band right when they moved to Boulder, and one of my first gigs with them was at the Fox Theater. When you first enter the lobby, the first thing you see is all those pictures, and it's just sort of a walk through history. This is like all star cast. Johnny Winter. I was at that show. Gary Newman, Jack Johnson, Flaming Lips. This was one of my very first photos. It's terrible, but that was from 2000. It's the year I started. Hi, I'm Lisa Siciliano. I started at the Fox Theater in 1992 as a cocktail waitress, taught myself photography here, and moved on to be a full-time photographer, specializing in rock and roll. You got to see these people before they were famous, and some you didn't even know they were going to be famous. I mean, I waitressed Dave Matthews here at one of his first shows, and there was like 150 people here. I never in a million years thought he would become Dave Matthews. I would just keep my camera above the bar. I would go up at Encore, grab my camera, go down and take a few photos. Instead of going to photography school, I learned here. Hey, this is G-Love from G-Love and Special Sauce, and I'm calling in from Boston. Uh, we're getting ready to start our tour and take it to Colorado. The first time we came through the Fox was in 1994, and we came through on a Saturday night, and we just blew the roof off the place. It was such a special night for us. The crowd was just electric, and it was our first time playing in Colorado. And we got off stage, and Donnie Strasberg, who was one of the original owners of the Fox, came up and said, I know you have off tomorrow, you want to play Sunday matinee show. So we said, oh, hell yeah. We booked it, and uh, it was another great show. So that kind of solidified this amazing connection we've had with Colorado in general. It all started there, you know. Well, one band that has many memories of the Fox Theater is Boulder's Rose Hill Drive. 
The rock trio is made up of brothers Daniel and Jacob Sproul and Nathan Barnes. They spent a lot of time making music together not far from the Fox on Rose Hill Drive. After what appeared to be a lot of early momentum, the band took a break about six years ago. But Rose Hill Drive is back with a new album. This is Bad Design off their new album, Mania. It's out Thursday. And uh, gentlemen, nice to have you on the program. Thanks for having us. Thank you. We're going to talk about The Fox in a moment, your recollections. But I have to ask about this song. There seems to be a lot of soul-searching going on in it, someone contemplating maybe what makes them behave the way they do, whether it's all meant to be. Daniel, what's the story behind it? Oh, this... uh this song kind of marked um, the, uh, I, I guess, the, uh, the spark of us uh, playing and the excitement of playing again. Um, we were in the studio, um, you know, just kind of casually trying to come up with stuff and rehash some ideas that we had, and um, it felt, you know, kind of un- unknown at the time, but it felt like we were kind of moving through mud, and um, I just started playing that riff that opens up the song, and Jake points at me, and he's like, that, like, let's do that. You know, that's way cooler than what we're trying to do right now. And so, you know, within uh, five minutes, we had the structure of the song and um, recorded it. And Jake took it home and came up with the the melody and lyrics. And um, it really um, just sort of proved at the time that what we were doing was was right and on the right path. And um, uh, just really exciting, you know. So this feeling of being back together and being in the groove. And what would you say the lyrics speak to, Jacob? Uh, it's kind of what you said. It's like, uh, just a contemplation of the human condition and, you know, not really commenting, just kind of drawing some con contrasting points and just throwing it against the wall, I guess. You will perform the three of you at the Fox theater in Boulder Thursday, and you call this your reunion and album release show. What will it mean to have the back together, the band back together in in that space, performing this new music, Nathan? Um, what the Fox has always been our 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 hometown stage, and you know, I think the first time we played there was when I think Daniel was probably like fourteen or fifteen, and I think I was seventeen, and wow. so yeah, it's just sort of a homecoming, I guess. Like it's been a long time. I've seen so many shows there, and um, I always definitely always get the most nervous for the fox shows than any others i don't know what it is it's just like being in front of your hometown crowd it was always the goal too it was always like like one day we'll play the fox ah you know and like then we we had the opportunity to do it several times well our manager at the time brian schwartz was like yeah no you'll you'll have many more shows there and i was like are you serious (laughs) and and i remember like then like 20 shows later 20 Fox shows later. Like, wow, we've had a lot of memories there. They actually opened the theater to just the band once 
so that you could showcase, uh, yeah, like audition for a for a producer for a producer. So we um, a producer named Brendan O'Brien, um, who we had kind of reached out to because he had a connection with uh, um, uh, some family friends, and so we had him fly out to Boulder to to watch us play, and we didn't know where. Um, we were going to set up and play and we got the brilliant idea. Oh, maybe we should ask the Fox and the Fox was so cool, um, to let us come in. Um, like it was like middle of the day. Yeah, it was like 11 AM. <laughs> <laughs> and we're setting up for what we think is going to be a show. And, and, uh, and it's just for one guy. And it was ultimately, uh, disappointing because not because, I mean, we, we got to work with Brendan and that was cool. Um, but when you set up at the Fox and you get all of your gear going and, and, and you get the amps turned on and everything's heating up and then you you go through a song and it's, you know, it's sweaty and intense and you expect the crowd to be there. And then when you finish, um, it's just a guy it's just standing guy. there. That was very, <laughs> very weird. So what year was that? Oh, man. Like 2002, 2002. Yeah. This is a, about the time when it, really seemed that you were on track to hit it big. Uh, you opened for bands like The Who, Stone Temple Pilots. In 2008, you appear on Late Night with Conan O'Brien. Rolling Stone listed Rose Hill Drive as one of 10 artists to watch. But by early 2012, the band appeared to have called it quits. And, and Daniel, why take a break? I mean, that's a, that's a fantastic question. And um, on paper, you know, you kind of look at that like, well, what, Why? You know, a big, big question mark there. Um, but it's, you know, when it comes down to it, um, the idea is different than the reality. And and the reality of what we were doing was, um, sure, I mean, we'd open up for The Who um, and play for 10,000 people and then go back to that market and nobody shows up. So um, Go back to that market, what do you mean? Go back to the, so you just play in Seattle and play in front of that many people and then you go back and it's like you didn't really capture anybody Mm. you know and who knows why i don't know if it's promotion or just the material wasn't there the you know um the ability to to really uh have the band something tangible in your mind you know maybe wasn't there for the audience um something didn't gel in retrospect yeah and and i think that um it's um it's one of those things where you do that enough and it's just like you know what i'm kind of running out of energy here and um I think, you know, I speak for myself because I, you know, that's the only feeling that I can have. But I think um, what it comes down to is is we beat it into the ground. Um, and now, you know, with kind of with that perspective, um, just approaching it the way we are now, it feels good and it's fun. And, you know, the, the music is, is something that um, is easier to get behind, if that makes any sense. It does. And I'd like to hear more of that new yeah. music. So why don't we hear this uh, tune from the new album, Do It Right. So, Jake, are you doing it right this time? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it feels it feels good. It feels free, and 
fun, like Daniel said. It's just a uh, uh, liberation, and uh, we're doing it for cool, good reasons. Do you think it's a question of maturity? Yeah, I I would wouldn't. I mean, that's obviously a variable, so I I can't deny that. And I mean, I don't want to say that I feel like I'm getting older, but um, it's uh, it's also just you know, having a lot of other things going on, I guess, as, as a sign of maturity that makes the band feel like uh, we don't have to take it as seriously as mm. we did. We're speaking with the Boulder members of Rose Hill Drive. They're back after many years with a new album. And I want to say that in this hiatus, it's not that you weren't making music. You just worked on different projects. And so I know that... Uh, Nathan, you and, and Daniel, I think, worked with Americana singer-songwriter Ryan Bingham, touring and recording with him. Very different sound from Rose Hill Drive. Yeah. Uh, how did that experience maybe influence this comeback album? Um, I think it was it was a really interesting component of the whole thing just because um, I had started playing with Ryan and then um, he needed a guitarist too and knew and loved Daniel's playing. And so we kind of, I got, I asked him if he wanted to do it. And then that was sort of a, uh, a new brand new experience for us. He definitely kind of lets you do his own thing with his music. That's one of the really cool things about working with him is it's not like it has to be the certain way, but I think just having grown up playing in this one musical situation since we were teenagers. And now like with me and Daniel, it was like a different totally different music musical situation and like being out on tour um but like we're still together making music together but new people new music you know it was it was a really cool just uh kind of same but different <laughs> sort of thing you know yeah, it was a big big uh uh gift of perspective i feel like mm. i remember i remember just looking around one point on the road like wait a second why why aren't we why aren't we doing this with rose hill drive right now you know, ah. and I think I think I needed I needed that kind of um, opportunity for autonomy in a way, and then really you know to get the perspective of like wait a second like we could we could do this bigger and better than ever if we wanted to you know and so that was kind of a, a catalyst for that. One track where I feel like I might hear the influence of your work with Ryan Bingham is Stars of Mine. Jake, you want to talk about the lyrics in this song, what the message is? Yeah, this is, uh, I guess, kind of inspired by um, my brother, Ben, who is uh, into astrology. And he gives readings to his friends, and he gave a reading to me. Um, so that's, you know, like connecting the stars to events in your life and seeing how they may or may not connect and may predict the future and um just that uh that notion is inspiring in kind of a cosmic cosmic way and so these this song and those lyrics kind of I, I guess lend themselves to that experience when was this reading 
This particular reading and this song, uh, this was all written, done and written in like 2011, maybe. Oh, wow. Yeah, so this is kind of an older idea that was rehashed. Um, and, uh, you know, it's interesting. Some stuff actually did come true. Um, from the reading. From the reading, yeah. So the song is still, and the concept is still very alive for me. Brothers Daniel and Jacob Sproul and Nathan Barnes are Boulder Rock Trio Rose Hill Drive. The new album is Mania. It's out Thursday. And tomorrow on Open Air's Mile High Noon, catch Rose Hill Drive performing songs from the new release in the CPR Performance Studio. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.